there. How are you? Welcome along to episode 9 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips or current affairs chat, but with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. This episode is about the horse Captain Seabee. Captain Seabee was trained by Eddie Harty, who I was lucky enough to interview at his yard in the Curra, back when COVID restrictions allowed, of course. Uh, it was a really enjoyable chat about a great horse who won the Supreme in 2008, and despite having his share of setbacks, which you're going to hear all about, managed to win 415000 in prize money during his career, all the way up to his final run in the champion hurdle, where he finished fifth at the age of 13. And I'll just tell you, when I pulled up to Eddie's yard, their dog ran out over to the car and he's actually waiting at the door of my car for me to get out and pet him. So he's, he's really lovely and friendly and everything. And Patrick Harty, Eddie's son and assistant trainer, who very kindly arranged the interview, he comes up to me to bring me in and I say, God, Patrick, the dog's, the dog's lovely, so friendly. And Patrick goes, yeah, yeah, he's lovely, yeah, yeah. And he's called Captain after the horse. So I thought that was great. Maybe tells you something about what the horse meant to Eddie. Um, and just one little note, around the 20 minute mark, there's a very, very brief dip in sound quality when I had an issue with one of my mics, um, but it's fixed quickly enough, so nothing to worry about. And yeah, that's enough from me. Please enjoy Eddie Harty telling us all about the brilliant Captain CB. So Eddie, we're here in your yard in the Curra to talk about Captain Seabee. Uh, so to start with, I'd just like to get some background on him. Could you tell us a bit about his, his breeding and how he came to be in your yard? Well, he was by Germany out of a very good black type German family, Morris Dack bred him. He had bought the mare, I don't know where he bought the mare now, to be honest, but it was like a German ledger, solid black type German family until Morris is one who'd gone national hunt, but other than that, it was black type. And like Godolphin had quite a number of the family. It was a very strong flat family, but a staying family. And my father bought him as a foal. He bought him on spec as a foal in uh, must have been 2001. Uh, you can double check that one yourself. It's getting back now. And it was 7th of April 2001 was when he was born. So yeah, so it was there, 2001. Yeah. Cause this time of year, 2001, dad bought him just because he liked the horse. And I was pretty not here now because he was telling me he was quite unruly as a foal and the, the devil's own job getting him into the trailer. I think Morris, as a bit of luck, bought him brought him back to, uh, I think he went to my Uncle Buster's originally. And that wasn't an easy task, but they got him back there and there he stayed. Dad had no great plan for him at the time. I don't think I, I hadn't said it about going training at the time. I think he just thought he'd bring him on there. He'd finished training, it just gave him something to come and look at. And that was that he was a foal and no, there was no plan for mother than that at the time i presume if i hadn't gone training he'd have gone to the store sales or something in his three-year-old year but as luck or anything would have it uh in 04 we started training here and in captain cb came mm. so in those early years what's what's his personality like has he got any quirks i was, I was always quirky and funnily enough, uh, any good horses, and we've been lucky enough to have a few of them that we've had, have nearly always had a quirk or two in them. Uh, he was quite 
unruly and you know he would he would kick you if you weren't watching especially when he, when he got fit you know you'd have to watch yourself when he was like a boxer he was perfectly placid when he was out in the field doing nothing but when he was tightening the screw he'd get he'd get a bit narky okay and how does he get the name captain cb captain cb was he's one of the very few horses that got named after someone or something important and actually lived up to it. Captain C.B. was my father's father, Captain C.B. Harty. And he was on, when the, when the Free State was founded, uh, it was decided that, you know, we needed to export stuff. And one thing we had in spades and were very good at was horses. And they put together an equitation school at McKee Barracks and Captain Harty was one of the, the first men into that. And they built up a team of show jumpers. And the idea was they traveled the world computing in shows and thereby advertising the Irish horse and bring buyers, inward buyers, into the country to buy the horses. And they were, and it worked very well. And they won all around them. Uh, they were kind of like the boy zone of their time. They went uh, all around the world. My grandfather met my grandmother in Madison Square Gardens right. and um, they won the very first Aga Khan Cup in Dublin, uh, that team. Yeah, they were fated wherever they went and when Captain CB the horse arrived and grew into a, into a nice two-year-old, Dad decided he was being called Captain CB and that was it. There was no, you know, we call him something different. No, he's Captain CB. And as I said, he's one of the few that actually lived up to his billing. Mm. And so you knew he was quite good from early stage? No, he was called Captain CB before he'd ever done anything. Right. Dad, this was, he was being called Captain CB. He looked, he looked impressive now and he had a lot of presents to him. And we were here, we started training in 04 and he arrived in here in 04 as well, just out in the field. And it came time to be broken and we hadn't many horses at the time. And he went over to David Valentine's over near Pontchestown to be broken. And then I think around early spring, late spring of that year, he came back here and he, we brought him down to the cur. David brought him down to the cur and we did a, a gentle hack around the sand and that was it. He was, he was now a member of the, the family as it were. And we knew fairly quickly after that he was okay because we just we decided we came back from the Valentines and all we wanted to do was give him a few weeks hacking around, you know, get used to the place, we get used to him and then give him a summer break. And after 10 days, I decided that we were giving him a summer break there and then because we were only hacking around and he wanted, he wanted to go quicker. He was, you know, latching on. He knew more than... He knew, he knew more than he should have known at that point. And where we were going to go, go with him as a three-year-old national hunt horse in the spring of his three-year-old year. So we gave him his, his break then good and early and brought him back uh, late summer with a view to giving him a, a run or two as a four-year-old and seeing where that led us. And that's a very good sign if, he's, if he knows that bit too much well, as a young man. It, a lot of horses... A lot, like a lot of people, 
think they know more than they know. You know, the young fellow out playing football for the first time, and he's Georgie Best, you know, he knows everything. Uh, most kids are the same. Uh, a lot of the good ones have talent that will manifest itself at an early time. But talent manifesting itself and doing more than you're physically able are two different things. And this horse had talent, but at the time he was trying to do more than he was physically able. We decided right now, you know, no point in fighting him. There's no point in disappointing him. He, he knows the run of the place. He rides well out now and back in then for the, um, winter. for, you know, winter, get him moving on, uh, and then see how he is in the spring with a view to run as a four year old and, we can take it from there if we don't think he's up to an early run, just back off him again and bring him back in the autumn. And that's what actually did happen with him. He went out in the field, uh, we brought him back in there, um, sort of September time, when the, when the evenings were starting to get longer and the goodness had gone out of the grass and did plenty of the same hacking and mucking around with him, nothing more strenuous than that, there was nowhere to go. Um, Again, he was a handful to ride at the time. Not that he'd want to buck you off or anything, but he just was always wanting to do more. You know, if he wanted to go steady, he wanted to go quicker. If you're going to go quicker, he wanted to go quicker again. And it's important to kind of get it out of them is the wrong word, but just to teach them at that point, just to, you know, cool their jets a bit if they can, because all the energy you burn up attempting to do more than you're asked to do is going to be energy you don't have at the finish. Yeah. And the, um, for that reason, it was to get, uh, get the horse mentally in the right place before we actually started introducing anything and quicker to it. And it's funny, if you look at the, the Formula One, I didn't understand it till recently, but apparently they have a, a lot of batteries on board now. And I was wondering, I always thought when they were qualifying, you do your quick lap and if you know, if somebody got in your way, you just keep going for another one. And they can't, they have to get those batteries up to get the percentage again. It's like that, you know, you need that. You've only got one real burst of energy in you. And if you use that up at the wrong time, it's not there when you actually want it. So, you know, you have to do what you can to make sure the horse is compliant with that. Okay. That when you want the maximum effort, he's going to give it to you, not be using up maximum effort doing something he shouldn't be doing at an earlier stage. So having gotten a bit of an education, he hits the track in November 2005? Yeah, he came back there. He had his, we decided in the spring um, of 05 that he wasn't going to get a run into him. He wasn't physically there for a run because my dad's idea would have been to sell him to stay in the yard and to do that you want to give a, a good account of yourself and I just thought oh, in April, March, April of that year he was he was too raw. Uh, so again he got another bit of a break, came back um, August time and went to Punchestown and we were 100% right he would have been too weak in March or April, because he was too weak in in October. And poor old JT McNamara rode him, and he came there like he was going to absolutely hose up and 
in the, in the deeper ground. He just couldn't see out the two miles. It was just too far from finished a very good third. Uh, a few people came to look at him afterwards. Dad was always adamant that when he was sold, he was staying here. Uh, so nobody came up that was actually prepared to leave him here. So he said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll give him another run now and see how we go. And we'll just train him. And when he sold, he sold. So he went for the, it was a very valuable bumper that I think it was 30,000. Uh, the foal levy bumper was for four-year-olds only at Leprechaun at Christmas. And again, looked like he was going to hack up and didn't see the two miles out in the heavy ground. Uh, so he's had two runs. He looks like he's going to win each of them and he hasn't. He's finished third. Uh, I'd always felt that good ground would bring out the best in the horse. So we decided, okay, right, you've had two runs now. He's got an education. He's got stronger. He's not there. He's not finished yet. You know, he's got to see his trip out, but that would probably only happen at this moment in time when the ground comes in his favour. So we waited till April and went to the Easter meeting at Fairy House. And at that stage, the ground was, was much um, more helpful. And we thought we'd win it. Uh, but you never know in a, in a bumper what you're going to come up against. I don't know, as a kid, having a few quid on a, on a bumper horse of dad's that I'd ridden, I couldn't see him beaten. I told me pals and they all had a few quid in them because they didn't, could get beaten. And I think it was in like a, a Maple or May evening meeting at Leperstown. You wouldn't expect anything much to come up against him. This lad was only second. He beaten, I don't know how long far he was beaten, but he was beaten anyway by a horse of Francis Floods. And our lad turned out to be half free. He won two Maccasins, would have won a gold cup, but he could never see out that last quarter of a mile at Cheltenham. And the horse that beat him was Bob's line that went on to win the, the champion chase. He just don't know. So this, this was the same scenario. I thought we'd win it. Um, we don't bet much here. So it was just, you know, that, that, at the time we're talking about 2006, I think it was. You know, the prize money was still good in this country. Uh, it still is good, but it was a lot better then. So you know, prize money its own covered, covered whatever bet you were going to have. And we went for that. And Colin Murphy had one that he didn't think would get beaten either. So John Thomas unleashed our lad at the, at the two mark and away he went to win easily. Uh, Colin was left scratching his head what had happened to his fellow because he turned out to be called Big Zeb. So it was a, it was a hell of a bumper. bumper Captain Z yeah. be, beat Big Zeb. Some bumper. It was some bumper. But you get those ones occasionally. You do get, you know, most bumpers aren't up to a whole lot. Same as most races aren't up to a whole lot. That's the nature of the beast. But uh, this one turned out to be one hell of a bumper, yeah. But then he's out for over a year. At that point, Dad wanted to sell him. He was, you know, at his most valuable. Uh, there had been inquiries, but none of the inquiries would result in him staying he here. And Dad was adamant at the time, look, he's not been sold unless he's staying here. Uh, so <laughs> there's really nowhere to go. We can't go hurling him because you're, you're not going to add value to the horse. You're going to, if you win a maiden hurdle, now, that's your novice season and that's someone else's, you know, whoever buys, they want to buy the bumper horse, the point-to-pointer horse that's taken over now. But the reason they're important races is the whole horse's career opens up. The bumpers don't count. The point-to-points don't count. They can do what they like in them. 
but for the horse's career for his new owner it's for hurdle racing and chasing and they want that blank canvas in front of them so he's won at he's won at easter we were never going to go for punches down for the champion bumper with him uh so we gave him a summer break and see what would happen over the summer and there was still a lot of inquiries over the summer but it still wasn't falling the way dad wanted it to fall uh so he came back in and we did a bit with him and i said dad look there's two ways you can go here he's won his bumper you can win a win a bumper we can go to cheltenham not going there he's we're not going there for the champion okay we we'll go for for the champion bumper at um punchestown so that was the plan we got him up we'll give him another break brought him back up again and about a month or maybe even less i can't remember the exact dates but he got cast and gave himself a cut and he couldn't he couldn't do anything over punchestown was out and at the time, I think it was Barry Connell sponsored a good bumper series, and it was one at the Curra. And this was an unforgivable mistake on on my part. That um, he got over Punchestown, but it took longer than we thought. And he was in for he was in, could do nothing except go on the walk. He could do nothing for a week with the cut, and he was able to walk for a week before we could get any more meaningful exercise into him. So he's basically doing nothing for the guts of three weeks and the curler bumper was on the fourth week. And I thought the horse was just so good he'd overcome that himself. And he did his best to, but he he, he just got tired. He wasn't fit enough and faded to finish fifth or sixth, I can't remember which. Um Mea culpa. Um I said to Dad, look, this horse is so much speed. Why don't I give him a couple of runs in the flat and we'll see what happens over the summer. We're going, there's nowhere else to go with him anyway. He said, that's a good idea. So I ran him in an amateur flat race at Leopardstown and he was third. Things didn't go his way. I said to Dad, I'd love to run him in a jockey's race. Now he'd put a proper, you know, national, a flat jockey on him in a flat race with a flat weight and see how he gets on. Um, so Kevin Manning rode him at Leopardstown in a mile and six, I think it was, Maiden. And he finished third. Uh, the second horse, I can't remember his name, but it was, an, it was a kind of duller horse with Dermot's that went on to be fairly decent. And the winner was um, Farmer Brown of Pat Hughes, who happens to be my uncle, who went on to win the Galway Hurdle that year. And Kevin got off the horse. He said, believe it or not, I know he's, I know he's won. He's had a few runs, but he was green. He said, you'll see a different, those horses won't beat him again. So I said, fair enough. And I said, well, now we're into May. What the hell am I going to do when now it's May? You know, I want to give the horse a summer break. Uh, and Kevin rang me up that night. He said, you know what? There's a grand little race there. It's a, it's a maiden down in Killarney. It's, it's a mile and three. I said, just Kevin, a mile and three. He won't, I won't bother him. He said, let him go down there. So we did. We went down to Killarney and Kevin rode him. And there's a picture of him there and you can't see the rest of them. They're that far behind him. So this is a national hunt horse and he can win a mile and three maiden by nine lengths. Nine lengths. And Kevin jumped off. He said, he's a group horse. If you want to stick to, the, to stick to that with him. 
this is serious. This horse. You can, you can go group flat racing if you want with him. Uh, so we came home very happy, Eric Killarney. And I don't know how it came about, but JP brought him very shortly after that on the evidence of Killarney. And from then on, he ran in the green and gold. To get an owner like that, to get JP Manis in the yard is... It's a big moment for, for any trainer. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, we'd always hoped that, because I'd known Frank, Frank Rowe, Dad's first jumps winner as a trainer. And we, that's how long, so we've known Frank since, you know, we were, since I was a kid, I've known Frank. And we'd always hoped Frank would come in. And, I, and to be fair, Frank and JP, I think were interested in the horse from the start. It was just, I think there was another trainer at the time who was interested in having the horse for JP. Yeah. And that, it had, if it had just been, if Dad had just wanted to sell the horse, that, it would have probably gone somewhere else. But uh, it didn't. And he ended up here. And of course, I'm thrilled. We've now got JP in the yard. And from the JP point of view, we never looked back. It's been a very lucky relationship ever since that day. Um, you know, we've had a nice view for JP up and down over the years, and I like to think that we've repaid him in kind. We've, we've done well for him, we've been lucky for him, he's been lucky for me. So that's how the JP relationship started, and thank God for it. Absolutely. So then he first runs in those colours in the Punchetown Maiden Hurdle in October. Yeah, we went, we, Frank bought him for JP there, he did his everything, was, nothing, there was no problems there. That was all very quick after Killarney. So we, he got his summer break at that point and he came back in then and there was a lovely maiden hurdle at Punchestown in October. And my first runner for JP. Uh, so I, I had him fairly straight. You know, JP's the kind of a man like if the horse runs well, he's happy if they'll improve forward, he's happy, that's fine. He didn't need me to go you know, having every mm. screw tightened just to uh, show him what I could do. But I remember Kevin Pennegas telling me, donkey's years ago, I know Kevin for many years. And he had a fancy owner. He said, I want to get a winner for him first time out. So that was in the back of my mind. Right. So we went to Punchestown anyway. And it's always a good maiden hurdle at Punchestown, but it's a good track. The ground is usually okay that time. Sometimes it can be too lively for a an out-and-out out national hunt work, but it's it's always nice. And he duly won it. And it did turn out to be a good maiden hurdle. And Jared was second to him. Uh, but he won it quite readily in the finish, came between two horses and with Andrew McNamara on one well. So we're all over the moon now. We're dreaming high. And yeah. Frank is saying, oh, keep it, you know, don't be putting yourself under pressure. Don't be telling them these things. Just, that's okay. So I was trying to... I think I was so, I took Frank's advice so much on board that I think people thought if I won the, the winners of one or Tremor now next time out, that would be my aspirations for a horse. But that, that was, that was the, the first win for, for JP, the first run for JP. And you weren't long waiting for the second? No, we looked for, for a race. We didn't want to overface him early on. And at that time of year, there wasn't that many options. We didn't kind of want to go the graded route and be throwing and pitching them in too deeply. 
And I found the one as the one that punches town in, at the, I think it was Morgiana meeting. It was the same one that corresponded with the, the Paddy Power meeting at Cheltenham anyway. And I entered him in it. And the next thing I'm talking, the fact is, God, we messed, we messed up there already. What's that, Frank? Neither, neither of us realised it was a winner's of one. It wasn't a novice winner's of one. So there was horses with bags of experience in it that were entitled to run, even though they'd long since left the novice ranks. And he said, well, actually, we're in it now. Go ahead, kick on. So Frank is in Cheltenham um, for the Murphy's meeting. We've this fella in, and I don't think he came off the bridle. It was as impressive as we'd never seen in a long time. It wasn't against novices, against more seasoned horses that knew the time of day. And I don't think he came off the bridle. It was very impressive, and we knew we had something then. He was well fancy that day as well. He was eight to eleven, shall I think so? Yeah, but he, a bit of pressure he won, he won. To be honest, until he told me it was eleven to eight on, I didn't know. That's that's what. 13 years ago at this point. Um, 13 years in a month. And I couldn't have told you, I couldn't have told you his money on until now. Um, you know, whether it was naivety or whatever, we were mainly flat at the time. I think he was the only jumper of any note that I had. I might have had a couple of three-year-olds. So I was going to go three-year-old hurdling with, on the strength of him being, being hurdling, but that was it. Um, and we were spoiled with this fellow. We'd rock up for a hurdle race and at Punchestown that everybody's knocking them over, so I've tried to have a winner at. This fellow just go around, he'd, he'd win. And it was fantastic. I spoke to Frank and JP immediately afterwards. They were thrilled. And it was very impressive that day. Yeah. Uh, so now you had to start, you know, not, you weren't turning the screws or we wouldn't say worrying even. Um, but, you know, you weren't going to, get away with the, well, I should be all right, and we might find a little race from in Tremor. That wasn't going to work anymore. This was now obviously a horse that was in the public eye or in the, you know, the, the pre-Cheltenham pu public eye. Uh, so the only, no one said the only, but the obvious target from is going to be the Supreme Novice, is the way I'm thinking. There's no way he's going to get two and a half. So it was only one target for him. It's the um, Supreme Novice. And how do we get there? Now, uh, of course, as I said a minute ago, I've no jumpers at this point. So, you know, you don't think about what can go wrong. This is just, just what I'm going to do. I'm going to just keep going for the Supreme Novice and we'll do this and that. That's fine. You, you know, experience can kick you in the teeth a few times and, and teach it not to be so confident about things but no we're going to we're going that's it so we'll go for the royal bond they give him a break over christmas and we'll we'll get him nicely tuned up then for for cheltenham uh and the one thing that worried me with the horse was very soft ground he just wouldn't handle his too good an action and at the time he was only just barely getting the two miles and he wasn't going to get it in deep ground but I knew we were going to have to possibly go on it at some stage. But, you know, there would be a time and a place, and this was neither the time nor the place. So we were going for the Royal Bond. And it was fairly wet week in the, the roll up to the Royal Bond. Now, the horse, horse-wise, everything was perfect. Couldn't be happy with him. But it was fairly, it was fairly heavy. 
and I was up checking the yard the evening before, and that was a Saturday evening, it declared and everything. Uh, and it starts to snow and it keeps snowing. Now it's not gonna, it's not gonna be lying on the ground, thick snow, but it's enough. And it goes heavy, it punches down and I rang Frank. I said, do you mind if I take this? Line? He said, right, good choice, said, good choice. So I took him out of the Royal Bond uh, and it was properly heavy up there. And I decided I'd, I'd better go up myself because I hadn't met JP at that point or I might have met him in passing once and kind of apologised for taking the horse out, which I did. And he said, come on and have a cup of tea and don't worry about that. He says, you never get a bollock from me for taking one out. You might get one for running one, but you won't get one for taking one out. Uh, and I never forgot that. So we had a good day, you know, something else won the, the Royal Bond that wasn't us. Uh, and we lived to fight another day. Um, we'd always planned on missing Christmas, so we did miss Christmas. And I thought we'd get the horse nicely wound up now. And because he's missed the Royal Bond, we'll go. There was a nice listed race at Punchestown in the first weekend in February. I said, Frank, that's the one we'll go for. It's not grade one or anything like that, but it'd be nice. Just the time will be perfect there for Cheltenham. So we, we do that. Uh, I'm on holidays at the time and I met JP on holidays and we, we got to know each other quite well. It was very enjoyable. And in the midst of this, he starts shortening up for the Supreme Novice. Uh, I got a phone call. It could have been Mike Dillon said, oh, your horse must have done a great piece of work. I said, I hope not, I'm on holidays and he's not due to do any work till I get back. <laughs> so for whatever reason, the horse shortened up for the supreme novice and by the time his prep run at Punchestown came down he's newly favored for it and we get to it was horrible ground at Punchestown had been very wet and as they're going to the start for the race beforehand I'd walk the track it was disgusting the snow comes again and it just they run the race beforehand in a blizzard and the race they decided to run before their good novice hurdle was the pretense qualifier with 30 odd runners doing two laps of the track they tore it to ribbons so i said jeez i wouldn't mind taking this lad out now and i hightail it back to the ring to get the saddle off andrew or talk to frank in the mean and frank comes over and says what do you think i said oh, wouldn't go Frank he says you're right out he comes so now we're going to we've no time to go anywhere else now there's only a, a race at what's now the, the Dublin festival and I think it was two and a quarter miles I did really didn't want to be going further than it was optimum that close to, to Cheltenham so we didn't go anywhere so I think I took him up to Dundalk and gave him uh, things I wouldn't do now with jumpers, you know, because I didn't have any of them at the time, uh, bar one, who ended up going to Cheltenham that year as well. Uh, we did things that we wouldn't probably do now with jumpers. And we took him up to Dundalk, we gave him a race course gallop, he worked fantastic. Uh, and now you know, we go to Cheltenham. But at no stage did it occur to me that like, nobody has ever done that before. 
you know, the, the horse can't go for the supreme novice not having run since the whatever date in November it was. Uh, but that didn't worry me in the slightest. You know, I was naive. Uh, that, you just knew he was fit, he was ready. He, he had experience from the flat runs as well, maybe? Oh, see, at the time, yeah, I knew he had plenty of runs. I knew he had plenty. It was, yeah, as you said, like he, he wasn't a horse just turned five with three runs under his belt gone to. He, he'd had a lot of experience. He'd had the few flat runs, he'd had the two hurdle runs, he had the few bumper runs. He'd been around the block a few times. He knew the time of day. And, you know, it was just wasn't right to run the horse anywhere else. And so on. And I rang Aidan O'Brien and Aidan said, no, you don't, don't worry about that. He said, don't worry. And he said, don't forget the box journey. The box journey over, that's as good as a piece of work. He said, that's fine. He said, look, we can rock up for the guineas. If you do, if, you, if your homework done and a good, a good season before done, you, you wouldn't worry unduly about that. Okay, you might get caught in a, in a fight and finish, but that's it. So I had a lot of confidence going there. I wasn't, as I, as I said, I was probably naive, but uh, rocked up to, to Cheltenham and I, I couldn't see him being beaten. Really? I, I was I was never I was nervous that day, but that was more because of the occasion. I was never nervous running Captain C B really. Uh in the in the early years. Because I remember talking to Dermot Welder about he had a very good horse. Um at the same time I Captain C B he had a good horse called what was it called? For the Abdullahs. And he won a heap of races at Leopardstown. Can you remember that talking about? Famous name? Famous name. And I was saying, you know, if I ever need a winner, I just produce Captain CV somewhere. And he said, yeah, I'm the same with famous name. He said, if I'm got going well and need a winner, I'll just run a famous name at Leopardstown. <laughs> Captain CV was the same for me at the time. So he came to chat and the horse looked a million dollars. He was in great form. Couldn't have been better. And the only thing that we had to do now was put the saddle on, you know, declare him and put the saddle on. The entries were done, declare him put the saddle on. Uh, so we gave him his final canter. Uh, in those days, it was the day before, was the, he declared on Monday for a Tuesday. And do that, go into Cheltenham for, for breakfast. And at 10 to 10, the phone rings, Frank uh, AP has been persuaded to ride binocular. And that took the wind out of my sails because, you know, I always thought AP is going to ride this fella. And, and presumably uh, you'd given AP every confidence you, as you spoke to him. So. Uh, the, the, I think the biggest, if you're ever talking to me, you can ask him yourself, but I think the biggest confidence bearer to AP was Ruby. Ruby loved the horse. He'd seen him in, in Ireland a few times. He loved him. And he kept saying to Ruby, um, Jeez, I'd love to be riding Captain CB in this. And they, they roomed together, you know, uh, Ruby stayed with, with AP. Uh, so from the Ruby camp, AP was being told he had to ride Captain CB. And I think, the, I think again, I don't know for that, but I think the turning point was Mick Fitzgerald was saying, um, I hope they don't run binocular in the, in the Supreme Novice. And AP said, why is that? Because if they run him in the triumph, he said, you'll ride Francho, and I'll ride Binocular, and I'll win. Uh, 
So I think that that swayed them. They put, they decided to take the weight advantage with binocular and the Supreme and put him in there as well. And Frank said to me, you know, who will we get? Um, Edward O'Grady retained Andrew McNamara at the time, who'd ridden them as two winners. And he had, could have been Tranquil C, I can't remember, in the Supreme Nightmare. So Andrew was gone. So Frank gave me a few names. And one of them was Thornton. I said, is that Alan King's Thornton? Yeah, I said, put him on. Wasn't any hesitation, Chuck, I love Chuck. Because he'd he'd, nobody rode Cheltenham any better than Chuck did. And he'd been leading jockey there the previous year. So that was fine. We get there. Now I'm getting nervous. It's the day of the race. Go in and see Chuck. Never met the chap before. And I said, yeah, I think this was a great chance, Chuck. I think you'll nearly win. But I said, if you are going to win, whatever you do, don't get there too soon. Get the two miles. Get the best ground you can. Don't get there too soon. And that was that. Into the ring. When AP went from Captain CB to binocular, binocular went favourite, or at least Captain CB drifted away from favourite. He shortened up again before the race. I don't know why, but he did. And I remember that three things I remember from the race were A, the roar of the crowd at the start. Uh, it was the first race, first day. Uh, the roar of the crowd at the start. And then I remember thinking going down the back, the ground was quite, quite soft that day. And all of a sudden I seemed to be struggling across the top of the hill. And I thought, geez, this horse isn't as good as I thought he was. And got a little bit disappointed. And then they came down the hill and I looked at the big screen and when I saw them jump the third last and he's only on their heels, I thought, we're not out of this yet. And it looked at the time like Binocular was cruising and Chuck was rolling away on Captain CV. But you obviously remember what I said about the ground, brought him over to the stand side and it was like taking a Ferrari off gravel onto tarmac. As soon as he hit that good ground, he just dropped, changed gear and went. And I mean, he ended up winning, he winning well. Yeah. And I think it was four, further four lengths back to the third. He ended up in a, grade one horse it was a hell of a run particularly when you weren't sure about the, the stamina side of things no i wasn't sure about the stamina side of but you know i knew the horse had guts and i knew he you know i knew he's good horse and that's 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 the difference yeah and in terms of how big that that is in your career that day there's there's a line on your website saying when he won at cheltenham that was when you knew that's that's where you want to compete yeah uh you know there's there's two places for me one was cheltenham and one was Ascot, and still, I've had a winner at Ascot, but now I had a winner at Royal Ascot, and that's the other box I want to tick. Um, Cheltenham, it, it, when you come into that winner's enclosure there, and the crowd around you, there, everybody's whooping and hollering, it's something else. I mean, the, <laughs> I hit the, the old chestnut has raised his head yet again this year about, you know, is Cheltenham too successful, or is it not successful, or what can be done about it? And the only intelligent thing I have seen about it recently, and I think I think it was Dave Jennings wrote it. You know, every year they rehash that. Oh, there's more to the season than Cheltenham, uh, and every year Cheltenham just gets keep bigger and bigger and gets further and further away from Cheltenham in terms of 
when it starts to build up. And he said he remembers the, when he was a kid, as do I, the FA Cup was a big thing, very big thing. As a kid, you weren't going anywhere that Saturday in May. The BBC would kick off with the FA Cup at 11 o'clock in the morning and would keep going till they, till they analysed the match afterwards. And he said, like, everybody knows that um, Wimbledon won the FA Cup in 1988. And he says, not many people will know that Wigan won it in 2013. It's kind of, it's just gone. You know, teams are turning up with their second string now to rotate them and keep them for the Champions League or the Premier. And it's kind of gone and it's not going to come back. Uh, but he said, you know, why not celebrate the fact that the Premier League is the best league in the world? And if something has to make way for it, why not accept the, the fact that Cheltenham is the biggest and best festival in the racing world? And if everything else has to play a set and figure to, well, then so be it. I mean, I would prefer personally if Cheltenham wasn't the be all and end all and that other races held their position within the calendar as big races in their own right. But it's not going to change in the near term. You know, that, that is the pinnacle. You know, if you're a young lad running, you want to win the Olympics. You're watching Eamon Cockton finishing fourth in Moscow, wherever it was, and you want to go better than him. You're not looking at the Evo Van Dam mile, good and all as it is, or the Bislett Games, or one of the, they're great competitions in their own right, but it's the Olympics you want to be at, and Cheltenham's the Olympics. And was there an element of vindication for you having not run them those two times because of the ground, and he still goes out? Oh, big time. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think about it at the time, but probably would now because I'm 12 years older now than I was then. But, you know, if I'd run bad, I'd have probably been vilified. Like poor old Pat Kelly was vilified for not running presenting Percy in over fences the season before last. You know, that was his idea at the time. That he, nothing was fitting in. The horse obviously wasn't right when they needed it to be right. And that was the route he had to take. And, you know, if he'd won it, he was going to be a, the cleverest trainer that was ever put in license in front of the licensing committee. And when it didn't come off, he was a fool for... I'm sure everybody knew he couldn't win it off the back of hurdle run. So, you know, the the... Nobody could say, I heard a very, very good train. Now, this is only hearsay, and I'm talking really, really good. I said that that performance was the training performance of the century. Uh, I hope whoever told me was telling me the truth. That would make me happy if I had to give up now, if knowing that that particular person said that would make me happy. Uh, in hindsight, it was a good training performance. In hindsight, it might have been a lunatic trainer performance but that was the horse I had I knew his strengths and I knew his more important I knew his weaknesses and you know you've only got one day you've got one target you can't it's not like you're not just letting a machine gun loose and seeing what hits what you're aiming one bullet at one target and you're hoping to hit it so you have to have everything in your favor to do it and so that was kind of the reason behind why I felt vindicated, not vindicated because nobody had ever given me a reason not to be vindicated, but I felt in a good way, not a, not a smug way, self-satisfied after it. You know, it was a big relief to win it. 
Absolutely. The horse has been favourable for three months. There'd been a big build-up. Papers had been in. It'd been filmed. You know. Again, knowing now what I didn't know then, I might have been more worried about things and played it a bit cooler. But no, I, I don't lost faith in the horse, and I knew or thought I knew where his strengths and his weaknesses were, and we played to them, and it worked. Yeah, it certainly did. And then it was on to Aintree. Uh, he's a five to four favourite on a day of since seen you describe as a disaster. Yeah, it was a disaster. I mean, uh, JP loves Liverpool. I love Liverpool. My father won the Grand National there. And it looked like a good idea, but in hindsight, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, that's a blase, cliche statement, but it's a true one. We shouldn't have gone there because the horse had had a long, and it wasn't a layoff that he was um, injured or unfit. He just couldn't run because of circumstances. So he'd had a long break between November and March. And now we want to go back two or three weeks later. And there was all, with a journey across and back over the IRC involved, there was always a danger something would go wrong in doing it. But I, could, I thought, just rock up with the horse and that'd be that. And we knew before they turned out of the, the back the straight that things weren't right with them. I mean, if the horse at Cheltenham was at Liverpool, they wouldn't have seen which way he went. And he came in with blood streaming from both nostrils. He burst blood vessels and poor lapis, which is covered in blood, uh, which explained that. And I don't know what caused it. I think, I think, having spoken to a lot of vets, including my wife, about it, it's a thing that's probably always there. It's there in a lot more horses than it used to be. Uh, it's a weakness, it's bred into them, but it's, it's a cumulative thing. You know, it's not like you have um, a wart. The wart's always there. It might get bigger or not get any bigger, but it's always, it's always there. In more or less the same size as the start of life, it'll stay there. It's not, it's a thing, it's insidious. It, and the longer the horse is in training, the more the, um, things such as environment, habitat, uh, routine are likely to conspire against you. You know, it's a, it's a build-up thing. A young horse, you know, you won't see yearlings bursting blood vessels unless they've got it so bad they're like poor children that have, you know, genetic birth defects. You're not going to see it until you start turning the screw and then it's just, it just increases bit by bit by bit until it manifests itself. Uh, and a lot of times it doesn't manifest itself. It's, you know, it's um, under the surface the whole time a horse will, will burst the blood vessel, but there's going to be no outwardly visible signs that he's done so. You'll just, you'll, you'll, you'll see the horse just threw in the towel at the wrong time, not throwing it in, they've, they've had a little bit of a, um, EIPH and it's, it stopped them being able to run and you, but you won't see it unless you actually go looking for it with a scope or um, surgical not surgical medical uh, examinations so unfortunately that was there and 
you know, you hope some horses do it once, never do it again. And that's sort of an environmental thing. The horses that have the predisposition to do it, you're going to be very wary of it from there on in. And we were with him. It didn't come back again until he went to the Arkell at Cheltenham in 2010. Yeah, he had quite a long break after that day at Aintree. Yeah, we gave, well, the, the long break wasn't a long break as such. That things just went wrong for the horse at that point. Uh, he came back from entry, having burst, we decided we're not going to try and get the horse right for punches. Now give him his break now, he's only a supreme novice winner. Give him his break, he deserves it. We did that, we brought him back, and the plan was always, because he was seven winning the supreme novice, the plan was always to go chasing straight after that. So he came back in and he was all geared up to start, and we weren't going to muck around because of the time of year. He was going for the Kilbegna, the grade three novice at Roscommon as his first run. Because Roscommon's a gorgeous track for, for chasing. You know, you got fences down the back, a turn, fences, it's all level, nothing could be nicer. Um, we went to Punchestown, he schooled over a few fences of Punchestown with Andrew McNamara and jumped brilliantly. Uh, his final bit of work, Fran Berry rode him, everything was fine. And then we felt his legs one morning and there was a touch of suspensory trouble there. And a touch of suspensory trouble is like being a little bit pregnant. There's no, you know, <laughs> it's no quicker. It takes nine months. Uh, so he got the he got the best of care and we got that right and that's why he was off from then until uh that was october he didn't run at all that season obviously so he came back i think it was it december with ap on it nice yeah. yeah yeah and he won that he hadn't run for he hadn't run since entry yeah uh ap rode him he was you know he was fit ish but he wasn't proper fit mm. and he won that when you were in, were in a good place then that put him more or less right and then a couple of bits did put him right for um leopardstown and that was the most unfortunate race i think i'll ever witness so just to, to set the scene it's the grade two chase at Lepp or so there's the grade one chase at leopardstown and sizing europe is the short price favorite in the race He's going, he, he's going quite well, but then you're a fella. I don't, the same day, I think it was, it was before that, about half an hour before that, Kato Starr had won the King George. And I remember watching it, and this whole Ruby just, you know, changed his hands in this fella. And this different horse materialised. And the same as that, Mark Walter, he hadn't ridden him before. And he rode him and. He's cruising along there in third, and then at the back of the second and last, Mark just changed his hands, and the Ferrari took off. It was, it was, it was kind of hairs on the back here next up where this fellow just came on, dominated, sizing Europe, and then he wasn't on a good stride to the last, and Mark shortened him slightly to it, and unfortunately, the horse's defence mechanism had always been when he was wrong let fly and drag his hind legs and that was his coping mechanism which he did again but because mark had just hooked him slightly it meant that the hind end was going faster than the front end and when he did that instead of just 
dragging his hind then a landed runner, which he'd done all the way through, including the last in the Supreme Novice. He, the back end was going fast in the front end and he went complete head over heels on the ground. It was, it was the hard now. I've no doubt he would have won and won well that day. It was just, it was, it was a bit gut-wrenching. But the horse, the horse was fine after it. Except for me, his confidence was never the same. Fencing was a fabulous jumper. But his confidence, because he thought this was, and he was an intelligent horse, he thought, this is how I cope now when things are wrong. Only he put his coping mechanism into play and it hadn't worked for him. His confidence was just dented. So we didn't go again then until, oh, we did, we went to Nice, didn't we? And he won, he won readily that day. It was lovely, even though it looked like a penalty kick. I think Foster's Cross was in it. Foster's Cross was, you know, he was knocking on 150 horse. And, but it was only, it was only a, a half speed for Captain Seabee. And now we're heading for the Arkle. And he's the, he's the joint, is he joint favourite with Sizing Europe? He's, no, your fellow's five to two favourite. Yeah. Um, and like, we're looking forward to that. It's just a case of, can we reproduce Leperstown? And he burst again, um, which was galling. Um, you know, when they do it the second time, it's not as bad for you because it's always in the back of your mind. You know, it's just something that's there. Uh, but it was disappointing in that it meant that it was a, a chronic problem, not a one-off. Um, so nothing can be done about it, you know, he's, he's bursted blood vessels, nobody's fault, including his, he can't help it. Uh, we go, we bring him home and with an idea and we sent him down for a nice break away from here. Get his head down, get some plenty of oxygen, fresh air in and we'll, we'll go for, for the, the Ryanair punches down with him. So that's what we did. I can't remember. That was sort of the 17th of March. So you had six weeks. So we gave him three weeks and we brought him back for three weeks. I said, we'll take the, take the risk on his fitness. And he hosed up it. And I tell him, or at Punchestan, that was, that was a great day. And to get that grade one over fences after being oh, it was, it was unlucky brilliant. a few times. It was know? very unlucky over fences. I mean, it, it never, things never really went his way over fences. For after he had that fall at Leperstown, he just was never as confident over fences as he was over hurdles ever again after that. Uh, so he's won the grade one. JP's delighted, I'm delighted, AP's delighted. Great day. And... He's got his summer break now, and now we'll head for the head for the champion chase next year. That was that's where we finished up that season. So that season, heading for the champion chase, he's he's fourth at Leopardstown at Christmas, third in the champion chase, third at Punchestown to Big Zeb. He's, was, he's running it, well, but not. No, it was a disaster. It was a disaster of a year. In the I think he won at Nice, didn't he? Yeah, he won his yeah his open. And season, yeah. then we're going for the the grade one at Leopardstown. And if memory serves me, that was probably, was it 2010? So the, sorry, Leopardstown, you're right, was 2010. Yeah, then, yeah. it was 2010, I'm right. Yeah. And 
we were frozen out of it for most of December. And we'd only one gallop here you could use, and even at that, you couldn't go very quick on it. And he just wasn't fit enough. Simple as, you know, my fault or not my fault. If the weather's my fault, it's my fault. If, if, it, if it's not, maybe it's not, but he wasn't fit enough. And that's why he was fought, so it was a bit disappointing. Went to Cheltenham, he ran absolutely blinder at Cheltenham in the champion chase that day. I mean, he got, if you watch the race again, he's got jumping well for AP. And then there was a horse in the race, I can't remember whose it was, but it had blinkers, I know that. And it brought him to a standstill at the top of the, at the, top of the hill. So from going from an encouraging position, he's now brought to a standstill, has to get going again. He don't manage that in the champion chase. He's actually won a hell of a race to finish third in the champion behind Big Zeb. Um, he's gone to Punchestown and his jumping has just gone to pot. How he finished third is beyond me. He never jumped a fence. He was clouting fences and still managed to finish third and still be in contention on the turn in. It was unbelievable. But his confidence was, was shot to bits. And that's why then he goes back over hurdles. Well, it was a kind of joint decision between myself and Frank. He was in the, the Galway plate and I'd been thinking for a while, you know, I'd love to go back over her. I'd love to go for the Galway hurdle with him because he's going to have a very high rating. He's going to push everything out of handicap. And a horse that, you know, two years ago, you could have been training for the champion hurdle in, the, in a handicap with most of the rest of them out of the handicap. It's going to be very hard to be, but he's in the plate. We put him in the hurdle and we went for the Grimes. the Grimes at Tipperary, AP came over. Um, it was worth a lot of money then. And he absolutely sluiced up. And I said to Frank then, Frank, don't go back over fences with this fella again. He's just so good at that job and he loved it. He loved it. So I went to the hur Galway Hurdle and, and um, disaster struck there. He's down at the start and AP is doing the clever thing. He's got locked on to Davy Russell's boot. He doesn't want to miss the break around Galway because he just can't. It's just too tight a track to be giving up ground. Uh, I think the starter said take a turn. AP, being used to being in England, did what he was told and took a turn. The rest of them didn't bother on the way they went. He's left. And to finish sixth or wherever he finished that day, was a hell of a performance given where he had to come from with the weight. Because you can't, you have to come around the field there and he just given away so much distance. It was unbelievable. And um, so that, that was the, the Galway hurdle for that year. And then he seemed possibly had another setback. He missed the following year's He did, he got, he got um, I think it was the touch of suspensory again. Right. I don't think it was a 10, I think it was suspensory, suspensory again. So he missed then a good bit of time till he came back. Yeah, so we're gonna go back, we're gonna have another crack at the Galway hurdle. And we'll go the same route, but he hasn't, you know, he has had an easy time of it. So Frank, in fairness to him, says, stick him in the old handicap there on Derby Day. Which I did. And with another horse going, could have even be going for the Galway hurdle the same year, Princeton Plains. And we put him in on the Friday. Uh, now, 
you remember I came from the flat and I only had the one jumper. Now it's turned around and I've virtually no flat horses at all. And I've gone from having a tremendous strike rate at the curse, never having a runner at the place. So I run Princeton Plains there on the Friday. It was well backed and he hoses in with Fran Berry on him. Um, Saturday was Derby Day, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I had nothing that day. And then Sunday is the last day. And the ground, I think, has gone horrible, if I remember rightly, that day. But didn't bother me with this fella because he was in off 80 when I think his initial mark was 90. And even that was just a, a prod in the dark. So we, we put him in the, the two-mile handicap with Fran, who just kind of does a bit of posing on the way around, looses the horse's head and wins readily, mm. you know, thinking, must have a good style on because I want this photograph. I want me on Captain CB <laughs> on the mantelpiece of some state. I've got to look well. Uh, wins and promptly goes up 15 pounds. So he's now 11 and he's gone up to a listed class rate in the flat. I mean, he's just something else, that horse. You've got to remember how he was bred. And what he, I mean, he could have done anything, depending on which way he'd gone. You know, if JP hadn't bought him and Prince Johan had bought him, he could have, he could have been a top, he could have been a ledger horse, yeah. an Irish ledger horse. He was that good. Uh, so he's that, now we've got, it's not the Grimes because the, or is the Grimes? It's Grimes again. He, won he three went to the Grimes, Tipperary, went to the Grimes next, but got beat by Re Rebel Fitz. And then he was third to Rebel Fitz in the Galway hurdle. Then he went back to Tipperary for a grade two. I think it was the Friends of Tipperary. Ah, that, in the October meeting. That's right. He went back for the grinds. He got beaten by Rebel Fitz, who ended up being a right horse. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the Derby is almost July. Galway is still in July. So now we're having our third run. We're going to have three runs in July. And probably Tipperary came too soon for him. Over after the, um, after winning at the Curragh. So you're second to him, goes to the uh, Galway hurdle again, and nothing went right again. I think whatever happened at the start, again, he missed the start, and that was the end of Galway, unfortunately. So we decided we'd go for it. And it was a very valuable race, Arc Day at Tipperary. And he wins that, and he wins it readily from memory. Very easy. Yeah. From Rebel Fitzsuit. Yeah. Yeah. The true, the true horse showed up. I mean, you just got to, you, got, you know, especially with horses that burst, you, you've got to just space their races a little bit because it's a cumulative thing. It's cumulative in time from when they go into training as the season progresses. It's cumulative with racing. Every race increases the, the chances of it. Uh, and nobody, they can, under, they can tell you why it happens, but nobody can tell you how to prevent it happening. Okay. And that's what makes it so insidious. You know, you can't, you know, if you've got, or you will have the, the threat of coronavirus, you'll take the vaccine and that will stop you getting it. You can't vaccinate against this. And nobody knows how to stop it happening. You can try various methods that might or might not work. When one was a boy, they'd say, oh, if the horse bled the day before, or the week before, he wouldn't bleed again. That was rubbish, but it was just, you know, you try something. If I stand on one leg out in the middle of the field singing Rule Britannia, it won't happen. So I do that, and the horse doesn't bleed the next day. I think, ah, yeah, so now yeah. from now on I go out to the field and I stand on one leg singing Rule Britannia. The horse has equally as much chance of bleeding. Just when you try something once yeah. and 
you get the result you hope for doesn't mean that that is the reason you got it it's like saying if i make a cup of tea ireland will score you know (laughs) (laughs) you know you know and and it's kind of it's a bit it's actually a bit uh, superior of you to think you can change the universe by mm. making a cup of tea or you know standing on one leg singing Rue Britannia. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and that's why I hate bleeding because you don't know the hour or the day. If your horse has a tendency to leg trouble, you can, you can kind of keep your eye on that and base a program around it. Bleeding you can't, you're trying a lot of things, but you know, at, at the end of the day, you're only trying a lot of things. You're not guaranteeing success. And that's what makes it so so hard to um, to deal with. Yeah. You know, you could, you, could have, you could have had a minor bleed against Rubble Fitz the, in the middle run. Yeah. You don't know because there wasn't nothing visible and we just accepted it. Maybe it was a bit flat, it was a bounce yeah. after running so well at the Curras recently, you just don't know, but you know, that's where you are. And that was it. You know, so we're, we've got the goal hurdle, but we've come back, we've redeemed ourselves in the great two Tipperary. In the great two Tipperary that he loved. And... Well, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the, the, the great two Tipperary. So he has a little break in 2013. Yeah. And then he comes back at the age of 12 to the same grade two Friends of Tipperary. Was that 14 or 13? So this is at the age of 12 in 2013. In 13, yes. He's, um, he hasn't done much for this, but I think we might have just looked to give the fellow a break now at this stage. It looks to me, looking at the form, that this was, he had his little break and this was kind of, as they say, this was his gold cup. You were really teeing him up that for was 13. No, do you know what happened? He went down and he got a bit of colic in Martinstown. Oh. And he had to have he had to have a bit of bit of surgery on it, so he came back. And I went down to see the horse, and he didn't look well. And I said to Frank, um, "Geez, Frank, he looks terrible. That horse. Look, he's earned his retirement. Give it to him." And so Frank and so I said, "Well, fair enough. We don't want to announce it yet. We'll just you know leave it sit for a while. But yeah, I know where you're coming from. If that's the case, that's what we'll do." So I get a phone call from Frank then. Uh, the box on his way up to you. I said, what's on it, Frank? Captain Seavey. I just thought we were retiring him. Ah, we'll give, we'll give him a couple of canters and see how he gets on. Like, he kind of, he was probably grinning from ear to ear. And this majestic oil painting got off the box. He just decided he was going to get well again and bugger standing around the field. He wanted to get back down to what he was good at doing. So we came back and you couldn't say he was as good as ever because he's, you know, he's had a lot of problems, you know, little problems because he's on the go a long time. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, um, they're cumulative at this point. So he can't be as good as he was, but he's not far off it. And not far off it is a lot better than most horses that are around at the time. So we tee him up. I can't even remember if we ran anywhere before Tipperary. I don't think year. so. I think he had a good long break. Yeah, he had a good long break. He had to, we came back and we teed him. We said, we go straight for that now and, and play it by ear from there on. So we went for we went for that. Now, he wasn't as impressive in it, but he won it very well, but he wasn't as impressive as he had been. But he hadn't won for a long time, I don't think. For, you know, he's entitled not to be as smart as he was and ring rusty and everything, but he still managed to win the bloody thing. Great too at the age of 12. Yeah, I know, he's he's a phenomenal horse, he's a phenomenal horse. So uh, the plan was then, 
I'll tell you what, the couple of years, one good run uh, where he came up against Hurricane Fly and Noel Mead's horse that got that died of a broken leg the following day. He fell at the last and Captain C.V. had actually run a better race than the, the, um, the bare form showed in that race because he kind of just got, they got away in them a little bit at the wall and when they quickened it took him a split second to quicken and when he did he um they never got any further away from him that that's i remember the morgiana now but we wanted Tipperary and we're there and frank says stick him in the um grade one at leperstown which i did and they had jet ski in the same race. Hurricane Fly was in it. And I said, I wonder if they're going to let him run his merits now or are they going to use him as pacemaker or what's going to happen? So he went in and Frank said to Mark, let him bowl along there, Mark. So that was grand. So next Mark let him bowl along. And next thing he was 30 lengths clear of him. And they're going down across the road of the seven and he's still well clear he's having the time of his life he's jumping from hurl to hurl and i was thinking to myself if they don't make a move before the next hurdle they're not going to catch this fella he's just too good he's not it's not like he's some 130 rated pacemaker this is a you know a supreme novice winner okay admittedly a few years back they won't get him back and ap looked up at the seven and could see what was happening and he brought the field up to captain cb if he'd sat for another 200 yards the race was over they weren't going to get captain cb so it was an astounding run okay you can say it's a fluke he's gone that far in front but then he comes out in february for the irish hammer hurl and that and does even better he makes the run there wise to him at this stage and I think it was only jumping the last they got to him. And he still wouldn't lie down. He finished, did he finish third that day? Was he fourth? And third. He finished it was third an amazing run. And Jeske was fourth. Yeah, it was an amazing run. And then uh, that was great. We hadn't talked anymore about it. Champion Hurdle. No. And then Frank said, in March, how was Captain CB? He's in great form, Frank. I think we put him in, we put him in the county hurdle at that point. Um, and at the time, Noel O'Brien had taken his age into consideration and was being lenient in the handicap with him. So he put him into the English, yeah, I think into the, into the county hurdle. I think he was about 155 in Ireland at the time. And I thought, 155 now, he's going to be competitive off that now. And I think the English handicapper gave him 163. I said, no, what's going on now? Are you wrong or is he wrong? I thought you were supposed to have, um, you know, a bit of cohesion at that mm. height of that mm. level. He said, oh no, he says the run is better than I thought it was. Oh, that was grand. So Frank said, how is he? He said, in fantastic form, Frank. And he said, Grant, we're going to supplement him for the, the champion hurdle. 13-year-old. Uh, with 13, we all, which we did. Uh, what year was that? 15, wasn't that? That was 2014. 14. Uh, and Patrick was um, Nicky Henderson's 
assistant at the time and had been he told me i don't know where he heard it from whether it was one of those pre chatham nights or something like that and barry was talking at it and somebody said to him you know oh what the hell is captain cv doing and that he's gonna make it and he said go hang on a second the owner and the trainer know what they're doing and that's a hell of a horse don't write him off there'll be more behind him than in front of him at the finish and he was dead right uh mark jumped off to make it an honest pace uh our connor for some reason i don't know what why he decided to go on because i mean they were going a strong enough pace anyway and captain cb he was a mighty hurler because he'd no fear of them if he was wrong he just let fly with the front ones and he knocked them or dragged them and i think i still i'd rem i'm probably wrong but i remain convinced that that was the, the end of poor r connor trying to lie up with him over he just took off or connor took off the same time captain Steve took off the wings and don't forget he's he's running an arkle chase there he's running in a, in a um, queen motor there he's won a grade one over fences he can jump he might there might be his jumping days might be behind it doesn't mean he can't jump and that was that was a very unfortunate incident but you know I, it wasn't captain cv's fault it wasn't dizzy he was just one of those unfortunate things that happens uh so he's bowling along he's having a great time and he's making the running for and it wasn't even jesky at the time it was um my tent or yours who was a phenomenally hard puller so the faster they can get they can go the better and carried out in the shield again the only thing that annoyed me that day was i think he came off the rail slightly um to angle out better and he just for whatever he just seemed to lose his rhythm when he did that and if he could have been fought he deserved that day to be unsaddled in the in the hallowed ground not with the also rounds but that was the you know you couldn't fault the horse he'd gone out in his shield big time that day and it was a phenomenal run for a horse of that age to be that competitive and he wasn't the horse that had stayed on to kind of pick up a bit of prize money from the back this was one that had you know had the the champion hurlfield's tongues hanging out trying to lie up with them so it was a great performance uh so we gave him a break after that and the idea was we go back and win the grade two or tip for the third year in a row and i can't remember if he even came back i think he might have come back and he was just feeling something i said to oh, frank he's, he's rising 14 now you know if he can't win this himself enjoying himself why should we put him through it so we decided to retire him at that point and he had a great retirement um so he went out to he went out to martinstown or he did better than go down to martinstown he went down to martinstown for himself and isterbrack to be in the field in front of the house where they could be seen at all times and a couple of years after that i was going down actually to see coney island on his summer break and they brought me down to the we went into the old yard and came in past the old house where the, the field that captain cb and isterbrack were in and it looks onto the the new house and 
there was a hill in the field as far as I remember with a bit of a tree in it and they brought Captain CB down of course Easterbrook came with him and their combined age at this point is 40 or something like that and I gave him a rub and looked at him and his legs felt better than ever and said to Frank is Frank we should have brought that fella back in training his legs feel great now <laughs> was he had a little bit of a leg issue we decided there was no point in in trying to get him back, look, leave him retired at this point. So I gave him a pat on the neck and whoever was holding him walked away. And I just looked at him for a second and I walked on. And as I walked away, the two of them spun on their heels and took off up the field. And I guarantee you there's not many younger horses that would have been able to lie over them, even at that age. You know, they, were just, they just had... It was, I wish I had a camera to take, the, to take a video of it. It was just... They're just Horses of that quality are, are different league altogether. They just they don't come around very often. Brilliant. And then, sadly, he passed away in February 2019. Um, yeah, I, th- I think he might have got another... I think he might have got... I can't remember. I don't know the details, to be honest. I know Frank rang me and said that the poor horse succumbed. He got... And I, I know by being Easterback's companion, he didn't succumb for lack of attention he'd have got better attention than most humans but he succumbed probably to colic um in that year which was which was sad but when you go through those memories there's a lot of them that an unbelievable man ah he was he was a fantastic horse i mean he was a supreme winner he was a grade one winner over fences he was probably a champion hurdle horse if we'd gone that route um he was probably a ledger horse if he'd gone that route. He was just, you know, he was just very, very good. You get good horses, but horses of that quality just don't come around that often. That can do what he did for as long as he did it, overcoming the problems we had to overcome at the same time. And know, at that point in your training career as well, just a massive, massive deal really for him to come yeah. when he did. But I mean, he was there from, he was there from the start of it and got us going on the jump side you know it's it's funny that you know when captain cv came here he was the only jumper we were predominantly flat and as you come in the year after poor captain cv left us it's come full circle it won't predominantly flat again now and just finally i have a line from you on the horse saying you feel like he never quite got the credit he deserved i don't because there, there was all like in fairness, he got a lot of credit in his early days that he deserved, and he probably didn't. If I if I rephrase that, I would say that he never got the credit I thought he deserved. He probably got the credit he deserved because he wasn't a hurricane fly. He he mixed and matched too too often and had too many little things go wrong with him to ever be to ever show on the on the world stage what he was capable of there was always something went wrong at some stage like in the arkle he burst uh in the race of leperstown he came down at the last and little things like that that just conspired against him that ever really stopped him getting a solid run if you look at the two big breaks he had they were both at crucial times in his career you know, he'd come back chasing. If he'd been able to go straight without without the year off into his novice chase days, um, 
God knows what would have ended up happening. But he probably didn't get the credit I think he deserved for being the horse he was at the level he was for the length he was. Yeah. I mean, he retired, you know, his last rating on the flat was 95. I never ran, after he went up to that rating, he never ran the flat again to see was he that good or better. Uh, he was 160 plus, I think he was 165 or six over hurdles. I think he was 170 or so over fences. You know, and those, you get horses that can be better than that, but they're not that good over hurdles, or that good over hurdles, but not that good over fences, or that good on the flat. But you don't get a horse that, you don't get too many horses that get that rating at that height across the three disciplines. Yeah. And that, I mean, retiring with a massive hurdle rating at 13 years old just doesn't Yeah. Like I mean, what did he retire over the hurdles? It must have been hitting 160 age 13. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal in its own right. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking about him. Thanks so much. I've loved, loved every minute of it. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure talking about him. All right. And there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that. Many thanks to Eddie for giving me so much of his time and being so insightful um, educational at times for me anyway. And of course to Patrick Harty, son and assistant trainer, for very kindly arranging the interview. Two absolute gentlemen. Now, here's the part where I ask you to subscribe, review, share the show with your friends, give us a retweet, send me on some feedback, all that sort of stuff. Go on, will you? And if you really enjoyed the show and you'd like to buy me a pint to say thanks, the Kofi link at the top of the show notes will enable you to do just that. Any support, always greatly appreciated. Or if you know a few or someone you know might be interested in sponsoring the show, my Twitter DMs are open. Just saying. Okay, finally, the music and commentary mashup ending. You are about to hear three commentaries. Firstly, Captain Seabee's win in the Supreme Novices Hurdle at Cheltenham in 2008. His grade one win over fences in the Ryanair Novice Chase at Punchestown in 2010. And his final win in the Grey 2 hurdle at Tipperary after a 252 day break in 2013 at the age of 12. The song is by an Irish band called The Redneck Manifesto and it's called We Still Got It, a song I felt was apt for a horse who continued to come back and show excellent form despite numerous setbacks. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode which is about the incredible See the Stars with John Ox and a little cameo from Aussie Jim McGrath. So thank you for listening. Good luck. Binocular on the outside, Binocular has taken over, turning towards the home straight, on the inside, rippling ring, core core star between horses, Captain CB on the outside, but J.P. McManus is second colours, then on the inside, struggling to pick them up, this snap tie, who stays on, the final flight here, Binocular and Captain CB, from snap tie back in third place, as they climb the hill, fourth is rippling ring, then core core star, Kalahari King, and it's a scrap between the J.P. McManus owned, Binocular and Captain CB, and it's Captain CB, Chop Thornton, who's finishing off the best, Captain CB from Binocular, as they race to the line, and Captain CB wins the Supreme Novices, a 1-2 for Jacob McManus.
Binoculars, second, snap by third, Kalahari King, then ripping ring, blue pages. Taking a few lengths out of the field as Captain CB joins Sportsline to dispute the second. But they four lengths to find on the leader. Hosan is back and forth, racing now to the second last. And let yourself go from Captain CB, Paul Carberry and Tony McCoy. Sportsline in third, racing now to the final fence. And let yourself go is the leader, being followed by Captain CB and Sportsline in the centre for Paul Townend. Captain CB on the near side. Let yourself go and Sportsline at the last in the Ryanair. And Captain CB is the leader as they begin the race up towards the finish. And Captain CB has put all his problems behind him. And there's the real Captain CB to win for Eddie Hardy and JP McManus. Game. Just the back marker as they turn in to face the second last flight. Moon dice towards the far side. Foster's cross. Bolts economy coming there between horses. Captain CB towards the outside. Away from the second last. Captain CB stands side of Bolts economy. They go on from Moon dice. Foster's cross. Boiled up trying to stay on down the outside. But heading for the final flight. Captain CB goes on from Bolts economy. Midnight game and then Moon dice at the last. Captain CB is clear by five or six. Good battle on for the minor money, but last year's winner, Captain CB, returns after a break and wins impressively. Captain CB wins impressively. 